Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you have your Bibles with you, if you could get them out with read with me today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Spencer. I get to be a pastor of Missional Living for our church community. Good morning. It's good to be with you, and I'm excited to continue on in this series on the seven churches. As we start, I want to tell you a quick uh, story. Some of you uh, will have heard this story. Some of you were here for this, um, but I was teaching at camp, uh, a Christian camp once. Um, it's called Royal City Camp Week, and I'd love to tell you more about it, but I just don't have the time. Uh, but some of you will know what I'm talking about. And I was uh, teaching in chapel a message on the fall where you hold an egg. You know, those of you who grew up in youth group are like, oh, I've heard this a hundred times, you know, but you talk about how creation, the world is like this egg prior to the fall. You know, it's, it's whole. There's no brokenness. And then at some point you say, you know, and then sin entered the world. And you can, you know, just crush the egg uh, with, you know, violence and aggression in your hands, or you can throw it on the ground. But I wanted more than that. I wanted a little bit more dramatic fall if I threw the egg at the back of the, the camp lodge and shattered it on the back wall. That'll be neat. But then I thought, well, I don't want to clean up egg off the back wall. So what I did is I hung a little sort of four-by-four tarp on the back wall. just didn't really say anything about it, and I thought, that'll be perfect. I can still have my dramatic effect and less mess to clean up. So I'm teaching, and as I'm going, I get increasingly nervous as I'm going that I'm going to miss this tarp altogether, okay? So, so I'm like really focused, and so the moment comes, and I say, you know, and then sin entered the world, and in my wind-up, I'm about to throw the egg, and I'm so worried about hitting the tarp that I don't pay attention to the fact that I'm stepping off the stage, and, and it wasn't a high stage. It was only about, you know, a foot or, you know, 18 inches off the ground. But when you're, like, mid-wind-up, that's enough. That's enough to throw your uh, throw right off. And so at the end of that chapel service, I had a whole bunch of egg to clean up off the back wall because I had completely missed the tarp. And I had a twisted ankle that I was dealing with, like, the whole week of camp. And it was horribly painful. People said, did that hurt? And I was like, no, not at all. Yes. You know, all week I, I had this throbbing ankle. The point of this kind of goofy story is that I was so focused on where this egg was going to be headed that I was not at all paying attention to where I was headed and stepped right off the stage. And I know it's a goofy story, but we're in the book of Revelation, so we could use a little goofiness before we dive in, right? Um, we're going to see a church this morning that is really focused on what's going on outside of them and do, doing quite well at being aware of what's happening around them, but is not as aware of what's going on within their walls. And that's very much to their detriment and to their danger, we'll discover. So before we go any further, I'd invite you to take a moment, take a few deep breaths, consider how you're feeling, 
invite the Holy Spirit into that place with you, and then we will continue on, okay? Jesus, we want to say that we love you. We want to pay attention to these words as we were uh, told to do. And we know that they were written to specific people in specific times and places. And yet we also believe that they have things to say to us today. And so would we have ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. The letter to the church in Pergamum. So we've got this map up that we've been seeing for the last, or we will in just a moment, that we've been seeing for the last few weeks. So Pergamum, um, there was actually uh, a road that ran up the coast here from Ephesus to Smyrna, and then up further up the coast. It was about 70 miles still uh, up the coast, and then about 15 miles inland along the Caius River Valley over to Smyrna. And what can we say about Smyrna that's unique? A lot of what has already been said about Ephesus, or excuse me, about Pergamum that's unique. Some very similar features to Ephesus and Smyrna, but certainly some things that do mark it out as significant. So um, Pergamum originally rose to prominence in the third century BC, and it was an early ally of Rome, part of what helped it rise to prominence. I think we can agree with hindsight that a mistake that they then made was rebelling against Rome. Um, they allied with some other city-states and, and rebelled against Rome, were defeated, and this led to about a century of decline. And it was during that time that Ephesus, another city in the region, rose to prominence, okay? But then a little later on, the city gradually built itself back up. Now, scholars will debate whether Pergamum then rose back in prominence above Ephesus or whether they were sort of on par in the region. Um, there's some debate there, but they agree that Pergamum, you know, suffered some decline and then sort of brought itself back. And that happened through a number of factors. One was a library, uh, a pretty massive, significant um, library that held over 200,000 volumes in Pergamum. I guess the city of Pergamum was an early adopter of parchment. Some sort of legends will say that they invented it. Other scholars have pointed out that that's certainly not the case, but they were an early adopter. And so they have this... Uh, quite significant library there um, for the region. They were also, as some of these other cities that we've talked about, a major religious center. Uh, there were temples to Zeus, Athena, Dionysus. We'll see a picture on the screen of, uh, of the ruins of Pergamum. And so the city was built onto that hillside, and at the very top was that temple to Zeus, with sort of an altar at the very top of that whole temple structure. Another uh, God that had sort of a, a temple and, and, and was sort of a, a center of worship for this God was Asclepios, which was an ancient god of healing. And it's because of the worship of Asclepios there in the city that scholars say actually Pergamum became sort of a, a center of learning in the medical sciences. And one of the most famous physicians in that time came up and trained in Pergamum. Another factor that made it significant, and we've talked about this at length, 
Pergamum was the center, the epicenter of uh, the imperial cult for the region, um, for all of Asia. And a, a little point that kind of brings this home, it was in Pergamum that, uh, it was Pergamum that was first allowed to build a temple to a living emperor. So in AD 29, a temple was constructed to Caesar Augustus, who at that point was still alive and well. Okay, so the center for the imperial cult in Asia. And it was because of all of these other factors that uh, at some point it was named the provincial capital of Asia, and therefore it would have, had, uh, would have been overseen by a proconsul from Rome that, uh, you know, sort of administered for the Roman Empire there in, in that city. So, with some of that context for Pergamum, let's look at our, our first verse. We've acknowledged that these uh, addresses to these seven different churches each kind of follow a similar structure, right? They begin with an introduction, usually some words of encouragement, then some words of critique. So let's look at the introduction, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, as you likely are realizing, each of these introductions is speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the one bringing the words to these churches. And so how does this speak to Jesus? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, First of all, it's a reference back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, which says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. But then scholars will say that both of these two verses in Revelation 1 and 2 uh, are actually references back to Isaiah. Um, A couple of different spots, but uh, most significantly Isaiah 11, verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So the rod, the scepter, the sword, all of these were symbols of judgment, the authority to wield judgment, both in the Old Testament and in the Roman world as well. This proconsul figure that I just mentioned who would have had their sort of seat of government for the province of Asia in Pergamum, uh, proconsuls had something called the right of the sword in the Roman Empire. And this simply meant that they were able to decide um, to execute at will if they thought it was in the interests of Rome. They had that right, the right of the sword. And so, even in his sort of introduction to the church at Pergamum, Jesus is reminding the believers there who holds ultimate authority. Jesus is reminding them who holds ultimate authority. And as we continue on, we'll see that this was certainly a relevant uh, theme for discussion there in the city. So that's the introduction. What's the encouragement that Jesus offers to the church there? Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus is saying, you are living in a dark place. In fact, where Satan's throne is. Now, as so much is in the book of Revelation, scholars kind of debate what exactly this is best referring to. And what most tend to agree on is that this is most clearly this idea of where Satan's throne is most clearly referring to the fact that, as we said, Pergamum was the center for the imperial cult in this whole province. And so, Jesus encourages them that they've not denied the name of Christ in this challenging place, 
even after it cost a fellow believer their very life. Now, we don't know much about Antipas. Over the decades to follow, uh, apparently different stories would sort of be attributed back to Antipas, but scholars say it's hard to know which, if any of these, are accurate in terms of how he lost his life. But what we do know, what scholars do tell us, is that this term, faithful witness, uh, used to describe Antipas. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. This word is martis. And scholars will say that it's because of the usage here with Antipas and back in Acts with Stephen that the word martyr, which comes from martis, eventually came to describe those who gave up their lives in witness to Jesus. And so we might ask, what's generating this opposition? I mean, there are some obvious reasons that we've already mentioned. You know, Christians throughout the Roman Empire gained this reputation as atheists, which we can kind of see how people came to that conclusion, right? When there's this pantheon of gods to worship, and Christians only worship one God, and in fact, they say that that one God became a man. You know, this guy who lived in Galilee and was executed. You can see how the charge of atheism gets sort of leveled in that kind of context. But also, it's quite possible that in Pergamum, the animosity towards Christians took on sort of a unique flavor. And so let's think about that. First of all, we said that Pergamum was the center of the imperial cult, so much so that they were the first city allowed to build a a temple to a living ruler. So they had drunk the Roman Kool-Aid in Pergamum, okay? They were sort of all in. And for many in that city, opposing the imperial cult, the the worship of the emperor, meant opposing Rome in the Roman Empire. And opposing Rome meant opposing all of the progress technologically and socially that people, that many people perceived the Roman Empire had brought. And so for some, opposing the imperial cult was actually opposing the human race and human progress. Similarly, think of refusing to worship all these different gods in a place like that has this, this center of worship for a god like Asclepios, where people would say, well, look, look at this sort of medical advances that are being made here, and you're opposed to that too, aren't you Christians? Yeah, yeah, figures. And so Christians in the city, for a whole host of reasons, yes, were likely seen as, you know, maybe superstitious or backwards, but it's quite possible that they were also seen as dangerous. And yet, Jesus' encouragement is that in the midst of being seen as opposed to their society's values and progress, perhaps even being seen as dangerous, the believers in Pergamum refused to distance themselves from the name of Jesus. That's his encouragement to them. So what's his critique? Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. It's alarming when you hear Jesus say that to you, isn't it? I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings uh, of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So seemingly two critiques there. Let's take them in reverse order because we've actually talked about the Nicolaitans before. Dave uh, gave us a little bit of context because the Nicolaitans come up in the address to the church in Ephesus. And so as Dave said, we don't know tons for sure about the Nicolaitans, um, but what we do seem to understand is that they were a group who taught of the uh, ultimate importance of the soul, 
that the soul was of ultimate importance and our bodies, you know, our bodies were going to die and decay. And so they were really of ultimately very little consequence. And as a result, what you do with your body is really up to you. It doesn't really matter all that much. And so as a result, uh, where the teachings of the Nicolaitans were, were sort of given um, a hearing, sexual immorality would, would um, become uh, more significant. Food that had been sacrificed to idols was eaten, something that uh, the elders in Jerusalem had specifically forbidden. So that's the Nicolaitans. What about the teachings of Balaam? That's sort of a new figure. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you'll Maybe that name will remind you of something, or maybe you know the story very well. Balaam is this interesting figure who comes on the scene in Numbers 22. So the context is the Israelites are on their journey through the wilderness, and they begin to infringe on the territory of the Moabites and the Midianites. And these two people groups begin to have this growing dread of the Israelites. So much so that the king of the Moabites, uh, Balak, hires this pagan, mystic uh, prophet figure called Balaam. And he says, listen, I am beginning to recognize that, you know, there's the Israelites far outnumber us, that we're in trouble, but maybe if you throw some curses at them, then we have a chance. Maybe we can defeat them. And so in this very incredibly interesting (laughs) series of chapters, Numbers 22 to 25, Balak tries to get Balaam to curse the Israelites, and God intervenes in this series of ways, and Balaam is unable to do it. He's unable to curse the Israelites, and in fact, he blesses them multiple times. And all of this sort of happens unbeknownst to the Israelites. But then in Numbers 26, the narrative shifts back to the Israelites. We get the sense that what happens with, with Balak and Balaam happens sort of up on this mountainside. They're looking down on the nation of Israel. But then in Numbers 26, the narrative goes back to the Israelites. And we read in in Numbers 26 of the first instance of Israel making some of the mistakes that would plague them for the rest of their time trying to occupy the promised land. We see some of these mistakes happening for the first time. It begins with intermarrying with other peoples, which they were told not to do. And in fact, we're told it's the Midianites and the Moabites, which then quickly leads to sacrificing to Midianite and Moabite gods and engaging in their religious festivals and practices. And in fact, it's in Numbers 26 that we get the first uh, mention of the pagan god Baal. And again, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you'll know that that's a figure that comes up over and over and over again, kind of plagues the Israelites throughout their history. And so we might say, okay, well, how are those two things connected? Well, and and certainly this doesn't answer the the question of what are the teachings of Balaam. Well, we sort of get the key that puts all of this together in Numbers 31. And I, friends, was never sort of aware of any of this until studying this passage. And it's, maybe it's, you know, the Bible scholar nerd in me, but I found this so interesting. So in Numbers 31, we're told that Israel finally goes to war against Midian. And in the course of that conflict, we're kind of told, sort of, you know, almost happenstance, that Balaam is killed in the course of that conflict. And we discover in Numbers 31 that the women who had been intermarrying with the Israelites, which was the sort of first domino in this whole series of problems for Israel, were actually doing so at the advice of Balaam. The Balaam was the one that gave them this idea. It's Moses that speaks to this, Numbers 31, 16. I realized too late last night that I forgot to put this verse up, so I'll read it for us. 
This is Moses speaking. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. I found this so interesting, friends, because if we just read Numbers uh, 22 to 25, we can kind of leave that seeing Balaam as almost this sort of unlikely hero, right? He's sort of hired to curse Israel, and instead he blesses them. Wow, isn't that neat? Great job, Balaam. And yet, what we actually discover when we put all these pieces together, as best we can tell, is that maybe all that Balaam realized is that Yahweh and the Israelites were never going to be defeated. They were never going to have any uh, success attacking them head on. And what they needed to do was sort of this misinformation campaign, sort of subterfuge, espionage. And so he suggests this technique of marrying into the Israelites, slowly turning them towards other gods, and sure enough, that has quite a bit of success. And so over the, the years, we're told by biblical scholars, this figure of Balaam becomes sort of a prototype, a catch-all for all false teachers who subtly encouraged compromise and accommodation to the wider culture. Okay, so with that context for both the Nicolaitans and those following the teachings of Balaam, you can probably understand now how some scholars actually quite a few come to the conclusion that Jesus is actually critiquing the same group in Pergamum. And what he's actually saying is uh, that the Nicolaitans are being given a hearing in the congregation there in Pergamum, and the Nicolaitans are following the, the teachings or the roadmap or the techniques of Balaam, slowly influenced from the inside, slowly lead astray. You know, is it, are you really not supposed to do that? That's probably okay this sort of slow misinformation campaign. And so, to summarize, the believers in Pergamum were being tempted from within to soften, to compromise the gospel message in order to appeal to the broader culture. But now if we step back for just a second and we contrast this with what we read, uh, the address to the church at Ephesus, we get this very interesting contrast. See, Ephesus was commended They were encouraged because Jesus saw that they gave no hearing to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And yet they were critiqued because they had forgotten their first love. Their affection for Jesus had gone cold. And so when we hold that up and contrast it to what we're reading here this morning about the church in Pergamum, we see the, the, the challenge, the struggle that the church has been engaged in for thousands of years, friends, finding the middle road of the gospel between, on the one hand, cold legalism, where it doesn't really matter how you feel about Jesus so much. It doesn't really matter if your, you know, heart is stirred by him, as long as you do the right things. And in Ephesus, they had done the right thing. They had not given a hearing to the Nicolaitans, and yet their hearts had sort of gone cold toward Jesus. And then on the other hand, this other sort of, uh, we have to chart the middle way through this other problem, potential problem or pitfall, of the opposite of cold legalism, what theologians call antinomianism. That's our million-dollar word for this morning. Don't be frightened by it. It's simply the opposite of legalism, the idea that it doesn't really matter how we live. Christ has forgiven us. We're loved by God, so just do what you want. And finding our way between what one theologian calls these two deadly giants, has been a persistent challenge 
for the church for millennia. And so now let's turn to verse 16. Here we get, we go from encouragement to critique to instruction. What does Jesus have to say? Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So we get here in these two verses instruction and warning and a promise. So the instruction first. Jesus says, repent. Repent. You've, you've drifted away from the heart of the gospel, now return to it. And it's so interesting, friends, because this is the exact same encouragement that's given to the church in Ephesus. Repent. And so regardless of whether we drift from the gospel to the one side or to the other, the answer is to repent and to return to the good news, the heart of the gospel, that we are more sinful than we dare admit, we're more loved than we could ever imagine. And when we experience the saving power of God in our lives, it will change how we live. That's the instruction. What's the warning that Jesus gives? Well, he says, those who refuse this repentance, refuse to come back to the center, to the gospel, will experience judgment. Here we get this symbol of the sword of my mouth. The sword is back. And then we get the promise. Hidden manna, white stone, new names. And I hope you're not surprised to hear that we don't know perfectly what these are, as with so much in Revelation. It's like, here's what these are likely referring to. Hidden manna. Scholars say that our best understanding for this is that Jesus is saying, listen, don't worry that you're missing out on this food that's sacrificed to idols, that you won't have enough. I will provide for you. As God provided for the Israelites in the desert, I will provide food for you. And in fact, he may w very well be reminding them that he is the bread of life. What about this white stone? Again, scholars say our best understanding of this is uh, this, this uh, cultural sort of artifact in this culture called a tessera. And a tessera was a token given that would count for your admission into a banquet or to a feast. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know I'm inviting you to abstain from all these festivities, these feasts, these, these parties going on in the world around you, but don't forget the party that you are invited to, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's talked about in Revelation, a party that will far outshine all others. And finally, new names. Again, our best understanding for this is that when we're given our resurrection bodies, new bodies and a new heaven and new earth, that we'll receive new names fit for that new life with Jesus. And so let's bring all this together. Pergamum was facing threats from outside, pressures from the city around them, primarily through the imperial cult, worship of the emperor, which had gone even to the point of one of their number being killed. And yet, we're told they had been fairly successful at sort of countering these pressures. But they also faced threats from within. 
over which they had been much less successful. They were giving shelter and a hearing to those in their midst who were inviting compromise. And, and friends, we don't really know what the motivation of the Nicolaitans was as a whole or even just in Pergamum. Perhaps it was a desire to be sort of, to make the Christian faith more palatable to the, the world around them. Maybe, frankly, it was just out of fear. Seeing what happened to Antipas, listen, we got to water this down or we're in danger. And Jesus, as we said, through this whole address, sets up this contrast of authorities. That yes, we do have an enemy, or in fact enemies. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they're, they're named as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these exist outside the walls of the church and at times inside them as well. And yet our advocate, Jesus, who is the victor, holds ultimate authority and will hand out ultimate judgment. As he said in Matthew 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so while we recognize that we do face an enemy, our fear goes to God, who holds ultimate judgment, ultimate authority. One final point before we wrap up. You know what I find so remarkable about this address to the church in Pergamum? Is that Jesus says they're living where Satan's throne is, but they're not told to leave. Now, I recognize, friends, that this is sort of an arg- what, what, you know, smarter people than me call an argument from silence. In other words, it's dangerous to draw conclusions based on something that's not said. And yet they're, they're told, these believers in the city of Pergamum are told, you're living where Satan's throne is, but they're never told to leave. Get out of there. Go somewhere else. And the only way that I can make sense of this is two things. One, the victory is won. That's not in question. The victory has been won. Christ has won the victory over sin and death in the grave You need not fear. And number two, the souls of those in the city are worth the risk. Those who were there in Pergamum, not yet following Jesus, were worth the risk for the believers who stayed. And so I think if we were to say, okay, how do we apply this to our lives, particularly as we contrast this address to Ephesus and now to Pergamum, I think our task is this, friends, here today in Guelph, is to be both sober-minded and soft-hearted. For us to be sober-minded and soft-hearted. May we be sober-minded, recognizing that there is an enemy at work in the world, opposed to God's kingdom expanding. And at times, that enemy's even tragically at work in the church. But we will do all we can to keep our house in order to not be fooled by disinformation that tells us that we have to change, water down, compromise the gospel in order for anyone to ever accept it. We'll recognize that the gospel charts this narrow and yet glorious and miraculous way between cold legalism and just crazy hedonism that says, do whatever you want, God loves you, it's fine. And we'll repent when we recognize that we've strayed one way or the other. We'll be sober-minded, And yet, let's be soft-hearted. 
constantly returning to Christ, our first love, stirring our affections for him. And we'll remember, if we're soft-hearted people, we'll remember that though we dwell in a land of darkness, the light has come. Christ has won the victory, called you and I brothers and sisters, friends. And if the one who holds the victory, the keys to death and Hades, calls us friends, then you and I can go into the spaces where we live, work, learn, and play, not in a posture of fear or defensiveness. We can go in a posture of love and graciousness and invitation. May we be sober-minded and soft-hearted. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the words to the church in Ephesus, or to to the church in Pergamum and Ephesus and all these churches that were specific groups of believers in a specific time and place and yet have truths for us today. Would we be faithful to the gospel as best we can? And Spirit, we need your help to do that. Would we repent when we realize we've, we've drifted? And would this allow us to go into the world, to all the spaces that we interact with friends and neighbors and coworkers, humbly, graciously, full of love and full of invitation to the greatest feast that the world will ever know. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.